turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And we're going to start our reading in just a moment in verse 32. And we'll be reading through chapter 5 and verse 11. Acts 4.32 through 5.11. And before we read the Word, let's ask our God to come and to give us the understanding that only He can offer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come in and of ourselves weak, blind, incapable of hearing. And yet you've made us new creatures in Christ. You've given us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive. So would your spirit attend to us, O Lord, that we would hear your word. Father, we pray that you would take that word and press it to our souls and bring us into conformity with the Lord Jesus, that we would rejoice in him and tremble before him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and waited at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things." Thus far, the word of the Lord. Brethren, please be seated. Well, several weeks ago, as we began Acts chapter 3, we noted that we were moving into new territory. 
the healing of the lame man in Acts 3 set off a litany of trouble. First, the trouble began from without. The Sanhedrin seized Peter and John, imprisoned them, and then interrogated them. Now, by God's grace, Peter and John remained firm. They withstood the intimidation tactics and boldly proclaimed the risen Christ. But knowing that more trouble was coming after Peter and John were released, the church begins to pray, not for relief, but for resolve. Grant that we would continue to boldly proclaim the risen Christ. And that's just what they do. However, while this initial wave of hardship was endured, let's all remember that Satan is not a one-trick pony. He is skilled, crafty, at bringing not just external threats, but internal ones as well. The devil has been stirring up trouble from within the congregation of God's people for millennia. The seizing of Joseph by his own brothers. The ten spies giving a bad report. Korah's rebellion against Moses and the Achan episode in the book of Joshua. Satan, we might say, has honed his craft to create dissension in the community of the faith. Thus the devil, while thwarted in trying to shut down the preaching of the apostles, he's now striking to sever the sweet fellowship of the saints. And that assault is seen with acute clarity in view of the love that permeated the church and therefore the lies that then come. So what we're seeing in this section is simply love and lies. Love and lies. And the chapter division here is most unfortunate because the structure of the text is giving us a glimpse first at a loving church relieving one another's needs, followed by a shining example of that in Barnabas, who then has a a foil, an antithesis with the selfish and deceptive actions of Ananias and Sapphira. Now in these various scenes, we're really seeing two things. Great grace and great fear in view of the great sin that's been committed. So let's look together at these two things. First, we're going to see unity and fidelity and the great grace that God has poured out upon His people. Now, starting in chapter 4, verse 32, and moving on through verse 35, we get a summary of life in the church. We've seen one of these summaries before in Acts 2, when the church were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to one another, fellowshipping, breaking bread in the homes, engaged in the Lord's Supper, and praying together. And then outside of worship, of course, they're coming together regularly to meet one another's needs. They had a true family feeling in the body. Everything they had was at ready disposal to serve one another. Well, that commitment only continues here. Verse 32, we read, the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own because they had everything in common. Now the church has grown rapidly by this point. The number, at least as we last heard it, was 5,000 men. Now I told you then we're uncertain here if that's 5,000 males, and there are many more, or if that's man used generically to talk about the total number. But either way, with this influx of new people, which can be very exciting, 
it also can lead to church growing pains. New people bring new opinions. They challenge the status quo. But we've always done it this way. They expand and test relationships. We all get into ruts about our relationships. We talk to the same people, sit in the same spots, and have the same Sunday routines. May need to shake some things up a bit every once in a while. But just imagine if you threw a couple thousand more people, all of a sudden, all of your norms would be overturned. New people would require new attention from the leadership. And it should be understood that there's really no place other than the temple where they can't always go. There's really no place where 5,000 people could gather in one setting to hear the word proclaimed. They would have been divided up by the various apostles teaching. We know they're meeting in houses. That becomes a custom. And trying to help your imagination here, Imagine you had a small group, and then your small group is busted up as the leaders place new people in your group to teach and shepherd them. Well, that kind of stuff frequently causes conflict. Some people require more attention. Some people get neglected. Some people are freaked out by all the newness and they pull away. And that's not even to mention all the other factors that could bring separation. Ethnic divisions. Some folks are Jews from Jerusalem, but a number of people have been converted, Acts chapter 2, from places all over the Roman Empire. So you have Jerusalem Jews and Hellenist Jews. Jews from communities in old Persia, Asia, Egypt, the islands. Satan's going to exploit that in chapter 6. Then there's the in crowd versus the out crowd. You know, we've been here from the beginning kind of folks, people who've been walking with Jesus the whole time, and then those who've just been converted. And then there are economic or social class distinctions. We have the rich and the poor. Yet with all this potential for division, what happens here? The Spirit of God works mightily to produce unity. God's people were of one heart and soul. There was true spiritual solidarity, togetherness. Now, many commentators note here that this language of unity is language used in the Greco-Roman world of deep friendship. Aristotle, you may know that name, Aristotle, several centuries back, wrote an influential treatise on friendship. Imagine that, somebody writing about what it means to be a friend. Maybe some Facebook friends might need to read this, see if he said anything about it. How did he describe friendship? One soul in two bodies. What is friendship? One soul in two bodies. And he explained that friends have everything in common. Well, here are the people of Christ by the work of the Spirit with an internal unity, and they have a love, a commitment to the same purpose. They are one And while Aristotle spoke of friendship within your class, among social equals, what we're seeing here extends beyond rank. This internal affliction, or excuse me, affection, this internal affection and commitment is evidenced tangibly as the needy, verse 34, 
are cared for by the gifts of the wealthy. Look at verse 34. As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now in the Greco-Roman world, there's a concept of being a benefactor. Uh, An upper echelon or wealthy person can sponsor someone of a lower class. But the economic or social separation was maintained even if you were a benefactor. But that's not the case here in the church. There's oneness. There's a refusal to cling to your own stuff. There's a true fidelity to one another. And this depth of connection where significant social distinctions are present, this giving to one another with no thought of return, it moves well beyond any concept of friendship that the world has ever thought up. Even Aristotle's idea of connection operated on the notion of reciprocity. I'll give to you just so long as you give something to me. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. That is not the picture that Luke paints. In fact, here the needy have no ability to give something back to the landowners or the owners of houses. That was pretty rare in the Roman world to have enough money to own land or a house. Personal property is highly valuable, but the wealthy are giving with no thought of return. Now, where did they learn that? Jesus, who though He was rich, became poor for our sakes, that through His poverty we might become rich. Jesus gave us, dear people, what we could never in a million years reciprocate. He gave Himself. He laid down His life for His friends. Those He regarded to be His own. That is His family. Indeed, that's the way that the prophets and the Psalms will speak of the relationship between Christ and the people of God. Isaiah 53, it will describe Christ's people as His children. Or Psalm 22, which is quoted in Hebrews 2, talks about Jesus as our elder brother. It's a family connection. And that's what the people of Christ are. We are a family. We are members of God's household. We are concerned for one another because we're that tightly knit together. It is no Southern Baptist invention to call someone brother. It's how the prophet Ananias will address the struck vine Saul in Acts chapter 9. Brother Saul. The people of God have a spirit-established unity that's like a family connection. And here they're living out that unity in love. Now, some, this is a little controversial, some look at this scene and they say, well, this is some kind of communism. This is like a communal life where you renounce everything that you have and your stuff becomes the group's stuff. Not so fast. This is not an abandonment of personal property. In fact, the mess that we see in the next chapter with Ananias and Sapphira, this will make it very plain. Their property was their own. And they could have kept it. Or they could have kept part of the money that they got when they sold it. What Luke is describing here is not compulsory giving. It is a voluntary sharing. A voluntary sharing. Such is the depth of unity among Christ's people that they no longer think of their stuff as things to which they must cling. This is mine. 
Rather, the mind of Christ is among them. So with humility of mind, they consider others as more important than themselves. And they willingly give valuable things to care for needs. Brethren, let us not let this passage die the death of a thousand qualifications. Yes, you can have personal property. Yes, you don't have to give your possessions away. Union with Christ and thereby union with people does not mean you can't own a house, a car, land. All of that is true. And it's important to make those points. However, the point being made by the Spirit of God is this, that love in the life of the church should produce a willing, sacrificial spirit. Well, do we have that? We should look at one another and not see distinction. This is my house, my stuff. Don't you touch it. No, we should see togetherness, a tightly knit community. What I have can help you. And this scene is a massive challenge to our materialistic Western culture where even among Christians, wealth acquisition is the key goal in life. Having stuff isn't wrong, and being rich isn't wrong. But being selfish is. Putting your kingdom first is idolatry. Love for Christ is shaped by Christ so that you will give, that you will have a spirit of sacrifice ready to give your stuff away and you're not looking for a tax write-off either. You just give to support the body out of love. And while this notion of holding everything in common is not normative, this is a unique moment in the life of the church, it's still an ideal that we should seek. Is there such a family feeling produced in our church that we would share whatever we have? Do we have a desire to help others in need? That we would go to extreme measures like selling family land, selling our hard-earned real estate acquisitions so that others might be supported. And while we note this love and unity on display, let me also show you that the apostles didn't hoard funds. We read in verse 35 that when proceeds related their feet, they distributed to each as any had need. The church is not a for-profit business. We are in the business of distributing. So a few crucial things here. One, the apostles clearly had an awareness as to what the needs were in the church. They were paying attention. They were shepherding souls. Now, this job is going to get so difficult because of the numbers in the days to come that they're going to get distracted and they need a diaconate created to help them do this. But there's a concern for body and soul. Or we might say this way, soul, which seems to be primary, and body. We care about the needs of the body. And then also, secondly, this whole situation implies those selling funds and making contributions. Now, hear me carefully and be ready to be, be mad about it. They were not giving dedicated gifts. This money must go to this line item, to this pet project, to this person. No. The money was given and laid at the apostles' feet for the apostles to determine where it would best be put. You can give with strings attached. That's not the scene here. And then interestingly, 
in Moses, uh, Moses' writings all the way back in Deuteronomy 15, he said, you know, when you get into the land, we want things to be such that there will be no poor among you. Well, under the blessing of God right here, this is being realized. But it's not realized maybe in the way that it's often portrayed in our culture. Poverty in the ancient world is not what's called poverty in the 21st century, where you say you have, you're poor, but you have a house, and you have a cell phone, and you have a pantry full of food. This is ancient poverty, where you had nothing. But the church is concerned to make sure you have what you need to live. But it is not making all things equal. It's not egalitarianism. It's not wealth distribution. It's not, you got to have what I have. No, there's still people who are wealthy and people who are poor. But they're just taking care of those who are poor so that no one can said to be in need. Well, do we have this kind of love? Hebrews 13, 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do we want to please God? Well, we should pursue unity in our devotion to one another. And then as I wrap up this point, notice also verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the apostles continued preaching in the midst of this display of love. And they were preaching with power. The Spirit of God is giving their words fire. And they keep speaking consistently of Jesus being raised from the dead, how He lives. He's enthroned in heaven. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And while we know they're doing evangelistic preaching, they're teaching the people the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we have hope in a fallen world? Because we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Brother, we're going somewhere. And we know that. We can be hopeful. How do we war against sin? Because just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we have a newness of life. Sin is no longer our master. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? How do we remain steadfast in our trouble? Christ triumphed over Satan, sin, and death. No enemy can crush us. We can't be condemned. It is God who justifies. Who is going to condemn us? How do we know that God is faithful? Because He raised His Son from the dead according to all the promises of Scripture. No promise of God will fall to the ground. Our Father can be trusted. They got all this stuff in the resurrection. They were not having special stewardship Sundays. They were not preaching on giving or on love. They were simply preaching the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You should find that remarkable. Why do we do what we do here at Grace Presbyterian Church? Why don't we just go from topic to topic to topic to topic? It's not wrong to have topical preaching. But the model of the apostles is to preach the truths of Scripture and then it leads to the change of your life. Great doctrine leads to ethics. That's the model that they set. And this is driving the apostles' preaching. And as they proclaimed the risen Christ, end of verse 33, great grace was upon them all. Grace equipped the apostles to preach. Grace equipped the people to give. Well, may great grace be upon us all that as we hear the word proclaimed, our hearts are moved with love for Christ and therefore love for one another. But then secondly, see with me, Generous, generosity and duplicity. They, that love practiced is now focused on a particular man that we hear about. 
this pattern that the people had in verse 34, the owners of things were selling them, bringing the proceeds, and were laying at the apostles' feet. Not a one-time occurrence. But then we read of Joseph, verse 36, also called Barnabas, son of encouragement by the apostles. He's a Levite. He's a native of Cyprus. And then these verbs again. He sold a field that belonged to him. He brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Why does Luke focus us on this one guy when evidently this is a pattern in the church? Well, three reasons real quick. First, he is both a Levite and a native of Cyprus. He's a Jew, but Cyprus is one of those islands in the Mediterranean Sea that's filled with Gentiles. And Barnabas, as we're going to see, will be concerned for the gospel to go beyond Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And guess what? Who's going to accompany Paul on the first mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Is Barnabas. Barnabas is a future leader. And then secondly, he's shown to be a man who models generosity. The leaders in Christ's church are not guys who tell others to do what they are not doing. This is not a do as I say, not as I do. No, there's an all-in commitment to Christ in the leader's love for Christ's people, and they practice what they preach. They're sacrificial men ready to spend and be expended. Barnabas is clearly gripped by the gospel of Jesus. He's a Levite. He evidently is a wealthy man. He's from Cyprus. Again, an island in the Mediterranean Sea. But he's got land holdings in Jerusalem, and the gospel moves him to sell it to give to the needs of God's people. He's putting others above himself. Elders and deacons, is that kind of mentality found in us? Do we not merely nod to the doctrines of Christ's sacrifice and new life, but do those doctrines change us? Having been loved so greatly in Christ, do we then love? Well, that's what leaders do. And then thirdly, Barnabas is cited as a man with a particular nickname. Evidently, there are a lot of Josephs in the early church, and they seem to change almost every Joseph to something else. Uh, in this case, they call him a son of encouragement. Uh, it fits his life and who he is. What exactly does that mean? Well, the word encouragement is very fluid in Greek. It could, it could mean that he's a son of exhortation, as in skillful explaining biblical truth, or it could mean he's a son of consolation. He's comforting and supporting others. Really difficult to decide which is meant, because if you study Barnabas' life, what you see is that he is the one sent by the apostles to preach truth elsewhere. He is accompanying Paul, proclaiming the truth of God. But he's also the guy who, after Paul was converted and nobody wants to hang out with Paul because he was a persecutor, Barnabas is the one who goes to get him and puts his arm around him. Barnabas is the guy who stands by John Mark even when he fails and supports him. I don't know that it's really necessary to choose between good preacher, a guy who can console you. In fact, I think what we should learn from Barnabas is he was a compelling speaker of truth and a man of kindness. He could declare Christ with great power, but he could also stand by your side. Oh, that every leader in the church could be known as a Barnabas. One who speaks the truth to you with conviction, but you know loves you greatly. We need more men who can exhort and 
console. That's pleasing to the Lord. Who could grip your heart with the truth, but then throw their arm around you as a companion. Well, that's Barnabas. But then the beauty of the scene is spoiled with a satanic intrusion. Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, chapter 5, verse 2, same verbs again now, sold, brought, laid. Only this time, verse 2, he kept back for himself, or it could be translated, he misappropriated, he embezzled, he stole. The same verb is used of Achan in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 7, where you remember Achan at Jericho? God's people were to, everything was devoted to God. Don't, don't take anything. And Achan saw something he wanted, he coveted it, and he took it. It was a shiny gold bar and a cloak from Shinon. Well, there's a little bit of a difference between Ananias and Achan. Achan had no right to anything in Jericho, but Ananias' property belonged to him. Again, when Peter presses him, look at verse 4. He asks him, look, while it remained unsold, this land, did it not remain your own? There's personal property. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Nobody's twisting your arm to give the proceeds of the sale to the church. In other words, Ananias could have retained the money from the sale. He could have said, I'm giving 50% of this land sale to the church. And that would have been honorable. But what he did was, he laid this money at the apostles' feet, claiming that that was the price for the whole shebang. I sold the property for this amount, and I give it to you. But the truth is, he didn't sell it for that amount. He sold it for more, and then he kept back stuff for himself. So what he appeared to do was be deeply sacrificial, but what he was really doing was being a hypocrite. He was aiming to gain a reputation. He portrayed himself in a certain way as selfless that he might advance his own name. But what Ananias, like Achan before him, failed to reckon with, what wicked people often fail to reckon with, is that God sees everything. He and his wife wanted, as one put it, to purchase the reputation of godliness at a discount price. I love the way he says that. To purchase the reputation of godliness at a discount price. But God sees right through the hypocrisy. And at a striking moment of the Spirit of the Lord revealing the truth, Peter confronts Ananias, verse 3. But Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now Satan filling the heart echoes another sad situation in the recent past. Judas and his betrayal. There's similar language here showing us the severity of sin. Ananias and Sapphira profess Christ, but they, like Judas, were frauds. Rather than being filled with the Spirit, they are filled with Satan and his ways, deceit and hypocrisy. If Satan can't force the church into silence, he's going to try to destroy the church with lies to develop a people with the appearance of godliness, but who in deeds deny the Lord. Yet as with Achan, the Lord intervenes here. 
And while the devil is active, I want you to notice that Peter does not excuse Ananias and Sapphira. Look at the language, end of verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied. You have not lied to man, but to God. Who came up with the idea to do this? Ananias and Sapphira did. And Satan simply took what was in them, further deceived them, and fanned into a flame the sin that it would lead to their death. Well, the Spirit of God will not have it. Note here, brethren, that Peter says in verse 3 that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, he says that he lied to God. This is a great proof text for you that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force or even a junior deity. He is a person and the Spirit is Himself God. To lie to God the Spirit is blasphemous. But then you might wonder, how did Ananias lie to God? I see that he lied to Peter and the apostles, but in what sense did he lie to God? Well, follow me for a moment. The apostles are the Spirit-empowered representatives of God. And just as Jesus says, whatever is done unto you is done unto me, or whoever listens to you listens to me, in like manner, to lie to God's representatives is to lie to God. Furthermore, the very action of giving the proceeds of the land sale was portrayed as an act motivated by the Holy Spirit. It was in Barnabas and others. But here, what appears to be spirit-empowered is actually flamed by Satan. You see, there's a complete disregard of the Spirit's omniscience, His all-knowing nature, the Spirit's holy presence in the apostles, and the Spirit's zeal to maintain integrity in the church. And what happens here once Ananias is confronted? He drops dead in judgment. Let that sober you for a moment. His wife comes in several hours later, not knowing what had happened to her husband. Peter questions her, but she's got her story and she's sticking to it. And after blasting her for testing the Spirit, Peter says, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And then, boom, she's dead. After we read this, afterwards, after both deaths, we read that great fear came upon all, verse 5, or the whole church, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You think? Even the unbelievers are standing in awe as they see this. Now this striking fear among the believers is a reverence and amazement at God that then motivates obedience. I'm not going to disobey Him. Now we all know, brethren, the Lord doesn't strike down every liar. This happens at a, an arresting moment in the early church. But the seriousness of sin and the great solemnity stands. Our God hasn't changed. He is holy. 
and we dare not trifle with Him. Are you here this morning and walking in lies? Professing to know the true God, but in deeds denying Him? Are you pretending to be godly and thinking that God somehow isn't going to notice? Are you playing a part, appearing pious, but you're really what a hypocrite is, is an actor? Are you putting on a mask? Are you lying to your elders, professing Christ to depend upon Him alone, and then trusting in yourself? Don't think you're going to fool God. Indeed, brethren, let us not think for a moment that sin is small. You know, in the whole scope of things, this seems to be, from the way we would judge things, a really small sin. There's a twisting of truth. You know, if Ananias and Sapphira were giving money to us, I think we'd probably be okay if they said they were giving us all the money they had, but they only giving giving us part of the money because we still had the money, right? We got something in our pocket. But God is never okay with misrepresentations. He hates hypocrisy. And if you go back through the Gospels and you read Jesus' greatest words of condemnation, they are all for hypocrites. Do we take this sin seriously? Do we truly believe in the holiness of God? Further, brethren, has the grace of God in Christ, the amazing forgiveness of sin we have through Christ, has it so captivated us? Has it so left us in awe of the Lord that we abhor doing anything that would dishonor Him? I dare not dishonor the lover of my soul who gave Himself for my redemption. Do we refuse to live in defiance of God, the God who saves sinners? Will we cast off presumption? Well, we put away wicked thoughts like this. It's just a little sin. It's just a white lie. God cares. God sees. And God holds people accountable. Do you fear God? What will happen at the last day to those who have no fear of God before their eyes? they will be struck down in judgment. God could kill us all right now if that's what He chose to do because of our sin. He's done that before in Scripture. This is not the first time this happens. But it should wake us up. Well, are we awake? And will the love of Christ compel us to go a different direction? Maybe you should remember, and I'll close with this, as this is a really sobering passage. Maybe you should remember this. The only reason we're not struck down and dropped dead because of our sin is because Jesus was struck in our place. And shouldn't that lead me to not want to dishonor Him in any way, conceivably? May the Lord sober us. It's a hard juxtaposition of thought, isn't it? Great love and lies. Great grace great fear, but they stand side by side. May great grace lead in our hearts to great fear, because I think somebody wrote this little line that you may have memorized, which was grace that taught my heart to fear.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are amazed by your sovereign power. We are amazed at your toleration on the one hand of all of our folly and these moments in Scripture where you bring with power your holiness to bear and it sobers us. Lord, may it cause us to take sin seriously. But may it also make us to see how sweet is the salvation found in Christ that we would be hidden in Him who takes the blow in our place. Father, would You produce in our hearts fear of You and love for You that that love might spill over in the way that we live as a family together, walking to please Your name. Hear us as we pray these things, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.